Welcome to Coffee, Eggs and Inspiration. It's a weekly show that goes out over YouTube and as a podcast over all of the major channels. And each week I get to sit with an inspiring person and listen to them tell their story and share it with all of you. This week is no different. I'm joined by Polly Bateman. Welcome, Polly. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Very good. Polly uh, is a mindset and performance coach as well as an author as the fancy ticker says at the bottom of the screen there, and uh, has had a, a really interesting um, set of experience, sort of starting in management training with Marks and Spencer, uh, ran several of her own businesses, ended up in the Defence uh, Medical Welfare Service uh, in a counselling role, uh, and that really uh, has led into the, uh, the mindset and performance coaching business that she has today. Uh, and also uh, somewhere along the, the way found time to write a book called The Grumpet, which we'll talk about. Fantastic name, by the way. I love that name. <laughs> um, Polly, let's start by talking a little bit about your background, your upbringing and uh, the experiences that kind of fueled what you do now. Okay. So I... Um... I was quite a sensitive child growing up and I definitely know that I had um, a real sense that I wanted uh, more out of life, but I, uh, lots of frustrations and sensitivities. And you know, something I've discovered with all the training that I've done as an adult is we write stories when we're children and we write stories in our head to deal with what we're dealing with. We think we know what's going on or we make the best of the facts that we have to, to decide what's going on. And I didn't know my father at all growing up. And so as a result, I wrote a story that, that I wasn't very nice and I was a little bit unlovable, <laughs> otherwise he would have been around. In fact, it was I was a lot unlovable, otherwise he would have been around. And um, and I remember when my mother got with my stepfather and along came my stinky brothers. <laughs> and I used to wish that I wasn't with that family. They were absolute horrors. They used to think nothing of terrorizing my toys and things like that. <laughs> so I remember them giving my Cindy doll a crew cut and putting worms <laughs> in my bed. <laughs> they were really mean. They'll be really proud if they heard this. Deeply so, horrific. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was things like that that I made me quite um, a sort of force of energy when I was younger. And I remember thinking back then, actually when I was nine, I drew a map of the house that I wanted to live in and how we would run courses to help people in this house, to teach them things like resilience and responsibility, things like that. And I wanted to rescue animals because I loved everything fluffy and everything that was you know, basically on two or four legs. I loved like chickens and stuff that we had around. And, and I wanted to be able to um, have the people that came into the home, they had to adopt an animal while they were there so that they learned what it was like to look after someone. <laughs> it was like very sweet and immature, but very, um, it's not a million miles from what I still want to do. So, so yeah, it's very, uh, that's how I kind of formed my years. And I was very much also somebody, my mother moved around quite a lot. And as a result, I had lots of different schools. And that actually is quite challenging for a child. And I found that that I became very focused, less on my academic side, uh, which is a shame because I'm actually quite bright, but I only realized that later on in life because I was often arriving in the middle of terms or or sometimes, I mean, it sounds like my mother was a, a sort of hermit moving, but she wasn't. It was about eight different schools in total, but it was enough to create enough instability in me that I actually had decided I was stupid as well. So if I'm stupid, I better be nice. 
So I used to do my best to make friends with everyone, try and be a popular one. <laughs> what a wonderful way of describing it. I've got this um, mental vision now of a, a Cindy doll with a crew cut. Um, <laughs> yeah, little sods. Me too. Little sods um, you had some time with the Defence Medical Welfare Service. Tell us about that. And, you know, you did a lot of your training there as well for counselling and uh, psychology and, and yeah, yeah. disciplines needed. Fascinating time. It was a chance conversation with somebody. It was a WRBS lady who worked. And I was actually out in Germany at the time visiting some people and and, and the, the, the the military boys were there, you know, because they were based in Osnabrück. And I was just in a conversation and she said, oh, I think I know of a job that would really suit you. And she said, it's living in the officer's mess. And my, my eyes lit up, not for the obvious reasons you might think as a girl, but mainly because my brothers had a lot of fun in their kind of their, their home life, which was living in, in the messes. And I remember thinking, God, that sounds amazing. And you got to travel as well. So, you know, I went back to the UK. I actually got the job, went back to the UK, trained up in Royal Hospital Hasler, which was still, as I say, a military hospital at that point. Um, and amazing to be based in a, the, the differences between how the military ran the hospitals and then when the NHS took it over was stark because people were still expected to have haircuts and be smart in bed <laughs> and not just ill. <laughs> they did lots of, I mean, it was very caring. If they couldn't, they weren't expected to do that. But there was so much order and so much cleanliness there and things that are so much more difficult for the NHS to keep on top of. So I, I did a lot of training there and we had to train up in counselling skills, pastoral care, palliative care, um, and we were constantly sent away on, on different courses to keep us, they didn't just let us loose on you know, anyone who's sick and in bed, go and sort them out. They showed us how we could do it responsibly. And as I was doing my training, I've never forgotten somebody telling me that it's often the expert in the moment with a high trauma victim that can say something dumb or crass that's intended well that can land so badly like oh there's people worse off than you and at the moment someone's whole world has just fallen apart that's not a cool thing to say and i remember feeling that i needed to be super responsible in how we took people on how we looked after them and after about a year i was sent out to germany um, and i covered 23 hospitals between hamburg and hanover because the germans are amazing they've got a different discipline for each thing. So they have like a hand and foot hospital, then they'll have a kidney hospital. <laughs> They've got a children's one. So you get a car crash with four soldiers in it. <laughs> Go and find them. <laughs> They're gonna be all over the place. They don't all end up in the same hospital. So it was an amazing role for being resilient, being in another country, learning another language. I'd learned French at school, so I had to learn German and a bit of German medical as well at the same time. Um, it was one of those environments where we worked really hard, but we played hard too. There was a, a lot of camaraderie and a lot of fun, you know, because I think it is, it's like that you all come in and stick together, you know, in those environments. So it's, uh, yeah, we had some great, I mean, it's just one of the golden moments in my whole life is that four years I spent out there, which was really fabulous. Sounds um, wonderful. One, yeah. one of the October fests, I imagine, if you got down to towards Munich. Yeah, yeah. There were lots of trips like that, yes. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Um, and, and you served yourself, right? You uh, you did a tour of duty in Iraq, I believe. Yeah, so the job came with a war role, um, which meant that we were operational if required, if there was a, a role for us out there. And what we did in Defence Medical Welfare Services, they're a very special organisation run originally by St John's, 
um, St. John's Ambulance, uh, well, it was St. John and the Red Cross. And the way that they, they came together, it was actually after the war effort, there'd been lots of lovely ladies who'd flurried along to the bedsides of broken soldiers and had written letters for them, read letters to them, helped them do a bit of some sort of craft and arts and things to keep them going. And then as the war finished, the Treasury had no money whatsoever. So St. John and Red Cross took over the funding and then gradually that changed. But as it changed and the government became, uh, sorry, the, 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 um, the company was able to do the funding itself, our training became more pertinent. You know, we couldn't just be nice ladies who went and sat. And then actually guys did the job as well. So we had to do on the job training, had to do modules from the university to keep our training up the front. And that would sit around sort of social uh, care and social health care and stuff like that. It was fascinating to learn some of the stuff that we learned while we were doing it. It sounds like it. One of my past guests uh, on the show is Brian Wood, or Woody, uh, who served in Iraq and um, had some horrific experiences. And, uh, you know, he tells his life story essentially in a book that's now being made into a movie. But he talked... Um, um, very vividly about the length of time it took him to really get help and the right sort of help as, as a result of the experiences. So it's, uh, it's such an important skill to have. And as you say, if you say the wrong thing, it's, uh, it's not good. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the tour in Iraq was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Yeah. Uh, and um, I equally you know, spent a lot of time, therefore, professionally working with people who were coming into hospital sometimes for... Uh, an elective operation or some symptoms that weren't so bad but while they were there you very quickly got to pick up that there was something else running underneath you yeah. know because if a, when a mind is upset everything else gets upset too and we dealt yeah. with some really punchy cases and it made me probably very well trained then because I, I swore I wouldn't marry a military guy but I didn't get out enough and I did <laughs> and I always joke like don't marry for love it stinks it's really hard work <laughs> but, <laughs> I married um, I married my husband. I met him sort of towards the end of my time out there. And it's very obvious we were meant to be together from pretty much the first moment we met. And, uh, and actually we met through a hospital case. I was dealing with a brother officer of his and people had, uh, they, the, the couple at the time had said, have you met the uh, welfare officer? Because she's right up your street. And then when I met Tom, my husband, he kept grinning at me. And I remember thinking, I don't know what that's about but I'm going to wipe that smile off your face if you're not careful. <laughs> I didn't quite work out what was going on, but he was smiling because he was thinking about what they'd said. But anyway, there was this whole role then as his wife that felt very natural uh, because when we, when Tom has been in different command positions, you know, I've had a different insight than perhaps some of the other wives because of the job I did before. So I've taken it quite seriously and spent time with people, you know, just listening to them, just being with them, because the number one human desire is to feel seen and heard. Well, um, a wonderful segue. Uh, let's change gears. Feeling seen and heard is not as easy these days as it used to be. Uh, we're filming filming this in October 2020. So uh, in the grip of COVID still, how's, how's your experience been and what, what are your observations uh, with the skills that you have on how this period is affecting us? Oh, it's a meaty question, this one, because I remember as we came into it, feeling a little bit excited, which sounds a bit wrong to say that almost in the light of you know, the, the, the fear that was going on. But I just felt that we were going to get a sort of big shake up. 
it felt like something big was coming and that was going to change a few things. And at the time, I was jumping in the car regularly and driving up to London most days and seeing my clients one-to-one. And this suddenly gave me permission to be at home. Now, whilst that was lovely and everything shifted to being on Zoom, I remember about three weeks in, Tom and I noticed, I mean, he was also massively running around because Tom was responsible for, for, for areas um, that, he, that were very involved. And as a result, we were both working really long days because suddenly uh, what I also found was actually there was a dip to begin with. As some of the clients that I had were like, oh, we're going to have to stop. We don't know what's going on. We're going to fall away. And it sort of gave me time to get my house in order a little bit. And then it's like the floodgates opened. People needed advice. They wanted to tune in. And what we all went into was a massive period, I think, of reflection of like, how do I make this work? And I remember noticing that there were times when my, my husband would come home, I'm like, you, me, God, now. You know? <laughs> and I just get outside because our son was at home and I was trying to run a full-time job. I was trying to run the house. I was making sure Tom was okay. And I was also homeschooling Harry. And sometimes I would feel a little, Whoa! by the end <laughs> of the day. And I thought, well, hang on, if I'm feeling like this, and I'm really trained on how to handle myself. I wonder how everybody else is feeling. And it's almost as if I, as I thought it, in they all came, you know, this sort of wave of new clients, which surprised and thrilled me because obviously you want to be a contribution in these times. But I was also very mindful of having an only child and a combination of seeing what it would be like for an only child stuck at home alone. And, and with, especially with working parents and trying to make that balance. There was a lot of mum guilt going on for me, but also I was aware of people who had lots of children and how difficult it was for them to handle that, you know, one times four or whatever. And yeah. I think parents very quickly became the most time poor category that there were available. You know, I think they were juggling everything. And that's, uh, that has a kind of thought there, you know, about I wonder how they are, I wonder how they're doing, you know, and I hope they're okay. So. That's something I used to check in with, with the people that I had that were parents. And, you know, lots of funny stories. One guy telling me about the dog that barked on his feet while he was having a meeting. And <laughs> yeah, the, the Zoom stories and the Google Meet stories are, are, are amazing. I'm a parent myself. I've got two teenagers, but I, I think it's probably more difficult if you've got younger kids. And, yeah. and your observations of this uh, led you into writing a book called The Grumpet. I'm going to put it on the screen here. Look at this, wonders of modern technology. Tell uh, us about the book. So the book was something, it was an idea I had when, um, when Harry was a little boy, because one of the things that I had decided with, I had very little confidence growing up. Um, I think I, I probably looked like I did have confidence, but in reality, I felt like caramel inside and I just didn't feel strong about things. The book came around because I really wanted Harry to have confidence and freedom. And when he was four, I noticed he was quite a cautious little chappy and he would worry about things. He was just, you know, if the slide was too high or if the roundabout went too fast, or we went to, a, I remember going to a rugby day and he played rugby and at the end they were doing a little obstacle course. And I remember it being stretched out quite, quite far around the field. It would take probably an adult a good 15, 20 minutes to get round. And to this little boy, it was too big. It was too much. And I remember him saying, oh, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it and being all worried. And we sat down and we started talking about the, the zero to hero feeling. And it sort of tumbled out of that. You know, it was a combination of things that had been going on. Where I was like, I need him to have a way to be able to talk about his feelings where children really struggle to talk about themselves. And then the grandpa came along, sort of just popped out one day. And he had the 
And I always make children laugh now because they had the best ears, eyes, and nose. <laughs> They're like, no! <laughs> but he has those, the best ears, eyes, and nose. And he spends his whole day looking and listening out for how you're getting on. Anything new, different, smelly, that, you know, that's, that's uh, unusual. And he goes from being all soft and fluffy to being all spiky. And he runs around inside of you and gives you those funny feelings. So you have to use your ears, eyes, and nose to see if it's really scary or just seems scary. And it created the, the break, the slowdown. And actually, at the time, all my girlfriends were like, oh, this is brilliant. You should do something with this. And I was like, they would say that. <laughs> They're my friends, you know. <laughs> and it was for a long time I didn't do anything about it. But actually, it was later on in my training uh, when uh, somebody challenged me to do a community project. And I remember thinking that I would do one based around the military. And then thinking, do you know what? I think I've had just about enough of doing stuff around the military. I'd like to do something a bit different. And the idea to explore whether the grumpet was a thing or not came up. And the, the leader challenged me to go into schools. And I remember getting some primary school teachers and sitting around the table and talking to them. And when I finished explaining it, there was just silence. And all I could think was, oh, they think I'm a knob. They don't know how to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> There's this little girl, she's made something up. So I remember thinking that, but sitting there, trying to keep my face like, it's okay, you can tell me whatever you need to say. And actually one of them then said, this is brilliant. We've got nothing like this in the education system at the moment. She was saying that everything that existed already had already has a personality that you had to relate to. And the thing about the grumpet is he's you and your reactions. Yeah. So your grumpet is the one that reacts just before you, essentially, and it's you're feeling him. And one of the reasons that it's actually better than I realized at the time is something I learned as I continued my training, <clears throat> how you are being is never who you are. But try telling that to a child because they collapse how they're being, chatterbox, naughty, you know, stop misbehaving or whatever it is they're doing, they collapse that with who they think they are. And they often identify that way. But here we get a way to separate because it's their grumpet. What's your grumpet doing today? Do you want to have a chat with your grumpet and see why he's feeling so spiky right now? You know, and then they'll actually, find it, it also gave them a way to suddenly talk about it. And when we did a whole plethora of workshops in schools, a great friend of mine, Vicky, and I traveled around doing all these workshops together. She'd hold up the storyboards that I found a, a lovely student illustrator who did some rough illustrations of the grumpet for me. And, and Vicky would hold up the boards and I would read the story. Um, and then a really great friend made a puppet version of it as well. And actually, he, he's here. We have to be really careful bringing him out because children go absolutely nuts when he comes out but he comes out and they all want to meet him and basically they go mad touching him groping him licking him all sorts of things but we sit them down and then we ask them if they'd like to ask their, the grumpet a question because he's this is my grumpet he matches my hair like in the book <laughs> so my friend running around getting different bits of fluff to match up to me and basically when they ask a question about something they're scared about he talks to me i'm like really okay, you want me to say that? And then I'll talk to them. And they're like, wrapped. They love it. Oh, brilliant. So it's, um, they kind of really identify. And then we hand out a sort of colouring in book, um, well, colouring in page, so to speak, where they then um, colour in their grumpet. And the feedback we got, particularly from, I had a, a friend who was a specialist, specialist needs education or specialist education, I can't remember what the titles are, but she said, this is gold. 
This gives me an insight into how the children are feeling depending on how they've colored their grumpet. And suddenly we realized we were onto something way bigger, way cleverer than I'd ever thought. I can't claim that. That was just, you know, div divinity there, right there, you know, golden moment. So as I, as I think about it, I, I meditate uh, each day. And, and one of the principles of meditation is sort of this out of body experience where mindfulness is about observing your feelings as opposed to becoming them or, or living them. And, and what you're describing essentially is, uh, is the theory of, of, of meditation in many ways. What a wonderful, uh, wonderful story and um, uh, a useful resource um, at, at, a, at, a, at a good time, you know, and congratulations on the book. I'm gonna leave you with the, the final word. Um, if you're watching this, you may be coming out of school or university or perhaps in a, a pivot in your career, whether voluntary or otherwise, what advice would you have? Oh. I think it goes back to what I just said. Just remember how you're feeling and how you're being is never who you are. People collapse it with their own personal value, particularly older people. And it kind of got coded in when we were a bit younger. It's something I'm really passionate about trying to now add into the curriculum in our education to really learn that the two are not connected. You have an innate value. You have some magic here to give the world. But if you are feeling not great, don't put the two together and think they come together. You know. There was a, a great analogy that I heard once from somebody and he talked about if your bucket of water is all muddy right now, what would you do to it to see what was in there, to see clearly? And people came out with, he was explaining how people came out with all these crazy analogies like boil it, sieve it, tip it out, put your hand in and rope around, you know? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's what we do, isn't it, to our emotions, we try to fix it. But actually, if you're feeling all murky and muddy, all you have to do is leave it alone. Do nothing and let it settle. Because when everything settles, you can see clearly. Then you can look in the bucket and see. And it's the same, I know that there's another analogy out there of letting the glitter settle. Let the glitter settle in the glitter ball and then you can see clearly. That's my advice. Don't do anything. What a wonderful, what a wonderful metaphor. I love that. When, you, when it all settles, you can see clearly. Um, thank you so much for joining me uh, today, Polly Bateman. You're an inspiration. Thank you. <laughs>